when uh, when he was going through the Ph.D. program at some seminary north of here and south of Plano. Um, <laughs> Was was some of the garbage that was coming out of the lecterns at at that school, and one of these was he took a course on apocalyptic genre, and uh, it's interesting how many people just don't keep up, so to speak, and and when I taught Revelation, if you remember, I called it prophetic genre. It's not apocalyptic, because apocalyptic is a non-biblical category. So you don't take non-biblical categories and apply them. But there's a lot more to it than that. And so when we were putting this together, I thought, well, this is going to be a great, great topic, great paper, and something Andy won't have to spend extra time working on because he's already done it. So I've been really looking forward to this, this presentation. There are two books of his that are out there. One is called... Uh, Middle East Meltdown, the Coming Islamic Invasion of Israel, which has to do with Ezekiel 38 and 39, which he taught here, I think it was last year, was his presentation last year. And then also his book, The Coming Kingdom, which is an excellent uh, study presentation of the kingdom as it's taught in the Old Testament, New Testament, why it's so important to properly define the term because it started to be co-opted by the late 19th century, uh, by liberals to refer to a social construct, and it became wedded to social justice. And this really changes a lot of things. And once you understand that, a lot of things in the early 20th century in America will start to make sense. So Andy doesn't need any more of an introduction than that. Please buy his books, and I will turn it over to him. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. I want to thank the conference organizers for one thing, never giving my wife the microphone. <laughs> You don't. You didn't hear what she just said over here. So, uh, well, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Book of Revelation, chapter one and verse three. And in one of the sessions, uh, we were talking about the movement of the uh, U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Remember we were talking about that? And I started to think of a way we can get Trump to win a second term. I think he should make the following promise four years from now. I'm going to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and I'm going to make the Palestinians pay for it. So. I think he'll probably win under that slogan. Well, let's turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 3. Um, The title of this session is Apocalyptic Genre and Inerrancy. Uh, This concept of dispensationalism has already been taught. I think uh, Dr. House made reference to this in his talk. 
But the fact of the matter is, according to Charles Ryrie's sine qua non, which means without which there's nothing, uh, we wouldn't have dispensationalism or the Israel church distinction if we didn't have, number one, a not just a literal hermeneutic, but a consistent, consistently literal hermeneutic. So if you take away a consistently literal hermeneutic in the areas of eschatology, particularly, then dispensationalism and all the things we understand about dispensationalism, you know, starts to disappear. And um, probably more than anything else on this list, I would say number one there is under attack. Uh, There is a widespread denial in evangelicalism today that you can even hold to such a thing as a consistent literal approach to the Bible, especially with very difficult books like Daniel and Revelation, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and so forth. And the tool, I think more than anything else, that's being used to undermine uh, a consistent literal approach is the subject of genre. Um, Genre is a French term. It means kind or species. And uh, we all know that the Bible is written in different genres. No, No problem with that. I mean, you don't read Romans exactly like you read the book of Revelation. So there's narrative, there's legal in the Bible, there's poetry, uh, there's epistle, there's prophetic, and so no big problem there. Uh, And I think dispensationalists who hold to a consistent literal approach are what the postmoderns call genre-sensitive. Uh, Charles Ryrie, in his book Dispensationalism Today, specifically notes that literalism does not preclude or exclude correct understanding of types, illustrations, apocalypses, and other genres within the basic framework of literal interpretation. So genre, uh, learning how to uh, approach different categories of literature in the Bible and recognize them actually can be a very helpful, helpful tool. My contention, though, in this presentation is that modern evangelical scholars have taken the concept of genre and have pushed it way too far. And what I'd like to show you is that genre, genre studies, is basically being used today to deny or to suspend the normal rules of interpretation in the area specifically of eschatology. Let me give you just an analogy for this from my law school days. Uh, You know, the separation of church and state that everybody says is in the First Amendment, when you read the Constitution, it's not in there. Uh, The right to have an abortion is not in the Constitution. Um, You know, the right to same-sex marriage is not in the Constitution. And I used to raise my hand in class in the law school and say, you know, Where's the textual basis for these ideas? And what they would always fire back with is, well, you don't really understand the genre of the Constitution. Meaning, don't you know, you poor, naive, flat earther, that (laughs) the founding fathers gave us a living, breathing document, which basically means you can read anything into it that you want. And they were using genre. See that? Uh, the kind of literature as a way to dispense with a consistent literal grammatical 
historical method of interpretation. Uh, a wonderful book that I recommend to everybody is Robert Thomas's book, uh, Evangelical Hermeneutics, The New Versus the Old. And there's a phrase that he uses in that book to describe this reality that I'm going to try to talk about called genre override. In other words, genre, the excuse of genre is being used to override what the actual text says. And this is not just true in the area of eschatology. It's also true in early Genesis. They're using the same approach. They're trying to argue that Genesis 1 through 11 is really not narrative history. So when you ask uh, how old is the universe, how long are the creation days, did the flood cover the whole earth or not, and they say, well, you're asking the wrong questions from the text. The text was never set up to answer those questions because the text is a different genre. It's really a polemic against you know, Gilgamesh or... Enuma Elish or, or whatever. So what you see in Genesis 1 through 11 is the same thing you see regarding the end times. Is Genre is being used to argue that literal interpretation no longer is applicable. And I think this is a serious issue, don't you agree? In 1994, uh, John Walvoord at that time was asked, what do you predict will be the most significant theological issues over the next 10 years? He responded, the hermeneutical problem of not interpreting the Bible literally, especially the prophetic areas. The church today is engulfed in the idea that one cannot interpret prophecy literally. So a lot of churches today aren't teaching prophecy anymore because they've been influenced by this idea of apocalyptic genre, as I'll try to uh, describe it. So what I'm trying to do in this presentation is expose how genre is being used to suspend the ordinary rules of hermeneutics in the area of eschatology. And I'll, I'll try to demonstrate that the literal grammatical historical method still applies today. It still works. Um, so here is a preview of where we're going. We're going to look at the, 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 the wrong approach first. I call that the new approach. And I'll try to show you how this is happening. I'll give you a lot of quotes that demonstrate this. And then I'll, second half of the presentation is the right approach, uh, the traditional approach, and how the traditional approach still works. So let's start off with the new approach. Uh, if, you're, if someone is a seminary student today or being influenced by an evangelical scholar, what are they being taught? Well, what they're being taught is the book of Revelation is what is called apocalyptic. Revelation is apocalyptic. Daniel is apocalyptic. Ezekiel is apocalyptic. Zechariah is apocalyptic. Now, a lot of you are hearing this and saying, well, so what? That's no big deal. But what I want you to see is the definition you're thinking of is very different. Same word, different definition. The definition is very different than what you and I think when we talk about apocalyptic literature. Uh, Ralph Alexander wrote a doctoral dissertation in the 60s, you know, I think successfully arguing that these books are indeed apocalyptic. 
But what you have to understand is he was applying a completely different uh, definition. So here's what the old definition used to look like. This comes from J. Dwight Pentecost. Apocalyptic literature in the Bible has several characteristics. There's visions, there's symbols, there's signs, there's an emphasis on the future for the nation of Israel. Revelation, Zechariah, Ezekiel are apocalyptic. And then Dr. Pentecost says, in interpreting vision, symbols, and signs in apocalyptic literature, one is seldom left to his own ingenuity. And what he's saying there is you don't need the sanctified imagination to interpret these things because a lot of times in the context itself, the symbol is identified. See, that's the old definition. I don't really have a problem with that definition. But what is happening today is a whole different definition uh, is being poured into uh, the term apocalyptic. By the way, Wayne, next to, your, next to you there is a whole bunch of money. I see 20, I see 5 down there. Okay, I just want to make sure you saw that. All right. I mean, it looks kind of inviting, you know, but uh, just, just want you to be aware of that. All right. That's right. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, so what is the new definition? The new definition is the book of Revelation should be lumped in with the other apocalyptic books. Uh, the old definition, you'll notice what Dr. Pentecost is doing here, is he's building his definition within the canon of Scripture. The new definition goes outside the canon of Scripture. And it goes into these books that we would consider non-canonical, non-inspired. The book of Enoch, Apocalypse of Baruch, Jubilees, Assumption of Moses. Has anybody had their devotional time in any of these books this morning? Uh, Psalms of Solomon, Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, Sibylline Oracles. And what is being argued is these books possess a common cluster of attributes... Uh, for example, most of them are written around 200 B.C. to A.D. 100. Uh, they feature angels as interpreters and guides. They're written during times of intense persecution. They use uh, vivid images and symbols. There's a great struggle between good and evil. They focus on visions. They focus upon the current age and the age to come. There's a dualism between God and Satan. Uh, spiritual order determines human uh, spiritual order determines human history. They're pessimistic about man's ability to change the progress of events. And they say, aha, well, the book of Revelation is just like that. Because doesn't Revelation share some of those affinities? Um, there's, some, there's some affinities or some uh, similarities as you look at it. And by the way, Revelation was written around this, generally around the same time. Uh, close of the first century. So they start to categorize the book of Revelation with all these other books. And once you do that, once you make that categor categorical leap, it's a game changer in terms of your method of interpretation. And what is happening is people are developing a hermeneutic from these non-canonical books and saying that hermeneutic is what is necessary to decipher the book of Revelation. So they're starting with things outside the Bible, 
developing a hermeneutic from it and reading that hermeneutic back into the Bible. That is not what Ralph Alexander was talking about in his definition of apocalyptic. That's not what my professor, J. Dwight Pentecost, is talking about here in his definition. And just at the outset, I would say everybody's going the wrong direction. Because as I look at these books, to me they are corrupted perversions of some of the very early, uh, if we want to use the word prophetic books or apocalyptic books. I think these things are corruptions of Daniel, which was written uh, four centuries earlier. Uh, These things are corruptions of the book of Ezekiel. These things are corruptions of the book of Zechariah. And rather than see them as such, people are saying, no, 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 these books are so important. And uh, Revelation is just like these other books. So let's develop a hermeneutic from these other books and read it back into the Bible. And this is the intellectual tool that people are using over and over and over again to suspend a literal, grammatical, historical approach to the book of Revelation. They're saying it's, it's impossible to interpret the book of Revelation using a literal, grammatical, historical grid. In fact, uh, my outside reader for my dissertation was Dr. Honer. And I needed him because um, if I had some of the other fellows in the New Testament department as my reader, I I don't think I I would probably still be there working on the dissertation. I don't think they would have ever let me out with what I was trying to say. And then I looked at the Internet, and by this time I had moved to Houston and sent in my final draft of my dissertation, and I looked at the Internet, and it said, Dr. Harold Honer dies suddenly of a heart attack. And I almost had a heart attack. (laughs) Because very unselfishly, I thought, well, what's going to happen to me? Uh, (laughs) And I thought I was going to get some guy, you know, that that didn't think you could interpret Revelation literally. So essentially what happened is Harold Honer had mailed my dissertation to me in the mail with his signature on it. And I looked at the date of it, and he had signed it, and the day later he died. And then I got it in the mail. So that's why I'm a a Ph.D. from Dallas Seminary today. I I barely escaped the tribulation. Uh, But once you move into this idea that these these, uh, book revelations, just like these other apocalyptic books, it's a game changer. And what I want to show you is four hermeneutical doors open that you can't close once you begin to categorize the book of Revelation as apocalyptic, the way they are defining it. So let me give you those four hermeneutical doors. And this is one of the reasons we uh, are losing dispensationalism uh, at the academic levels. The first hermeneutical door that opens is it becomes impossible, they say, to interpret the book of Revelation literally. So here's a quote from Kenneth Gentry. Uh, He is arguing that the book of Revelation already happened. Did you know that? The book of Revelation already happened in A.D. 70. And he says, Before beginning my survey, I must know what most Christians suspect and what virtually all evangelical scholars, now notice who he puts in parenthesis, excluding classic dispensationalists, that would be us, right? Recognized regarding the book, Revelation is a highly figurative book, I agree with that, that we cannot approach with a simple, straightforward literalism. 
And this, is, uh, this thinking is all over the emergent church. Uh, one of the key leaders in the emergent church is Brian McLaren. He says, The book of Revelation is an example of a literary genre of ancient Judaism known today as Jewish apocalyptic. Trying to read it without understanding its genre would be like trying to watch Star Trek or some other science fiction show thinking it was a historical documentary. Instead of being a book about the distant future, it becomes a way of talking about the challenges of the immediate present. So the book of Revelation is not about the future. It's about right now. And why does he think that? Because of his genre category. He calls it uh, apocalyptic. Steve uh, Gregg, another preterist, writes, another obvious similarity between the apocalypse and its uninspired counterparts. Well, what uninspired counterparts is he talking about? All of these uninspired counterparts right here. Uh, He goes on in this quote, and he says, another obvious similarity between the apocalypse and its uninspired counterparts is the use of vivid imageries and symbols. Then he says, literal and less absurd... Though this is a good rule when dealing with literature written in a literal genre, it is the exact opposite in the case of apocalyptic literature where symbolism is the rule and literalism is the exception. As I'll show you, my hermeneutic for Revelation is the same hermeneutic I use anywhere else in the Bible. I take the text at face value unless the text tells me otherwise. He's saying because of that apocalyptic categorization, it's the opposite. You always take it symbolically until the text tells you it's literal. And you go down that direction and you can come up with any number of theological systems uh, to support. And one of the reasons people do this with apocalyptic literature is they say this is crisis literature. Uh, Crisis literature is where you exaggerate an impending crisis to demonstrate its severity. It's like saying, the world has come to an end because I lost my job. Well, we all know that the world literally has not come to an end. It's just an exaggeration. And this is what these people believe is happening in the non-canonical apocalyptic books. Uh, Notice this quote from J.B. Caird in a book called The Language and Imagery of the Bible. He says, eschatology is a metaphor, the application, watch this very carefully, of the end of the world language to that which is not literally the end of the world. So this literature they're saying is filled with hyperbole. And therefore the book of Revelation being part of this literature must be hyperbolic as well. Now, you read through the book of Revelation, it's kind of hard for me to argue that the events already happened. Uh, What do you have uh, with the fourth seal and the sixth trumpet as half of the world's population is destroyed? Has that ever happened in human history? Does anybody remember the sea turning to blood? Does anybody remember the greatest earthquake in human history ever happening? Um, Does anybody remember the great city reigning over the entire earth? Now you approach these things literally and you start to say, well, these things are futuristic, which is the right view. And they say, oh, no, no, you poor, poor, naive fundamentalist. That's not what this is talking about at all. This is apocalyptic literature, 
which has a great emphasis on hyperbole. So this opens the door to preterism, which is the view of the book of Revelation happened. There's different versions of preterists, but happened in AD 70. Or it also opens the door to historicism, which basically argues that the book of Revelation is happening right now. It closes the door on futurism. That's why there's fewer and fewer evangelical scholars that will take the mantle of futurism because it's for what I'm saying here. They, they don't think it can be approached literally the way we do. Uh, so Kenneth Gentry says, the preterist view does understand Revelation's prophecies as strongly reflecting actual historical events in John's near future, though they are set, watch this, in apocalyptic drama and clothed in poetic hyperbole. So when you ask a preterist, how come the text is not consistent with A.D. 70? A.D. 70 was a terrible event, but it was local. It wasn't global. And when you point out global language in the book of Revelation and saying that global language is inconsistent with the local events of A.D. 70, they say, oh, that's just, that's just hyperbole. So anytime the text deviates from the actual events of A.D. 70, they've got, a, they've got an intellectual tool that they go to a genre uh, classification. Uh, R.C. Sproul says, Russell and Calvin agree. Now, I had to read that a few times. How could Russell and Calvin agree when they lived in different centuries? But I'm just nitpicking, I guess. Russell and Calvin agree that in the language employed in biblical prophecy, prophecy is not always cold and logical, as is common in the Western world, but adopts a kind of fervor common in the east uh, he's appealing there to apocalyptic uh, hyperbole don preston uh, who's basically saying all of revelation is fulfilled in AD 70 uh, writes this the apocalyptic literature hyperbolizes the destruction of jerusalem well don uh, how, how do you get the global events of revelation into the local events of AD 70 look where he goes he goes to the sibylline oracles the apocalyptic non-canonical books. According to Sibylline Oracle chapter 5, the whole creation was shaken when the war began uh, on Jerusalem. If Revelation is also apocalyptic literature, then Revelation must similarly be using uh, hyperbole. Robert Thomas, who's in our camp, appropriately says, a preterist approach must assume an apocalyptic genre in which the language only faintly and indirectly reflects actual events. This extreme allegorical interpretation allows for fulfillments in the first century of the Roman Empire prior to the destruction of Jerusalem uh, in A.D. 70. Now, it's not just um, New Testament scholars that are appealing to this apocalyptic hyperbole. It's Old Testament scholars. And you can see that based on how they treat the prophecies of Babylon's destruction. When you read through Isaiah 13 and 14, where it, it analogizes the destruction of Babylon to cosmic disturbances, global judgment, complete and final desolation. Does it look like that's already happened? I don't think so. Uh, particularly when it says, when Babylon falls, man will become scarcer than gold. And it compares Babylon's fall to interstellar activity. 
Jeremiah basically does the same thing. When Babylon falls, it'll be sudden, it'll be complete. Believers will flee, and it will be so profound that Babylon's building materials won't even be used again. Does that describe how Babylon fell? Not at all. Uh, When you go into actual history and you learn how Babylon fell, and this is Herodotus, he talks about how the Persians... Babylon fell historically in Daniel 5. And what the Persians did is they shut off the uh, water flow from the Euphrates, which allowed the Persians to tunnel to go underneath the walls of Babylon. And so Herodotus says those Babylonians who dwelt in the middle did not know they had been captured. When Babylon historically fell, there wasn't even a battle. That's very different than what Isaiah says, isn't it? Very different than what Jeremiah says. Uh, Cyrus, who conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., boasts about it in what's called the Cyrus Cylinder, which has been translated for us by James Pritchard in a book called Anet, which means ancient Near Eastern texts, and he describes how there wasn't any battle in 539 B.C. and how Cyrus basically went out of his way to preserve the Babylonian deities because he was a polytheist and he didn't want to make them unhappy. And when the Persians entered Babylon in 539 B.C., and by the way, do you know what chapter of the Bible that happened in? Daniel 5, the handwriting on the wall chapter, that the Babylonians were rejoicing. So there is no cosmic struggle. There is no conflict. Uh, there, there certainly is no time in history where Babylon has been completely and finally desolated the way Isaiah predicts, the way Jeremiah predicts. In fact, today there's people living in Babylon, isn't there? We call that what nation? Uh, the nation of Iraq. There's a long list of history post-539 in this area called Babylon. Dr. Walvard says, as far as the historic fulfillment is concerned, it is obvious from both scripture and history that these verses, that's Isaiah and Jeremiah, have not been literally fulfilled. The city of Babylon continued to flourish after the Medes conquered it, though its glory dwindled, especially after control of the Medes and Persians ended and so forth. So you know what I do with all those prophecies? I put them into the future. That's why so much of Jeremiah 50 and 51 shows up in the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18. And when you argue this, they say, oh, you poor, naive fundamentalist. Why would you think that? Well, I think that because of literal interpretation. And this is where you get this big lecture about genre. Homer Heater wrote a Jets article where he argued that Isaiah and Jeremiah are using a special genre called destruction genre. And when you read through Robert Chisholm's book, Handbook of the Old Testament Prophets, he says the language of Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 50 and 51 is stylized and exaggerated. See, that's a genre call. And he argues it's been essentially fulfilled even though Babylon was never made final desolation of back in 539 B.C. So, so to argue that if you were to stand up in academia and say these prophecies are yet to come, you're, you're basically laughed at because they're using genre to dispense with 
ordinary rules of uh, interpretation. So it becomes impossible for literal interpretation to take place once the genre call is made. A second hermeneutical door opens called apocalyptic multivalence, which means prophecies are fulfilled over and over and over again. You, you move away from the idea of a single fulfillment of a prophecy. So J.J. Collins writes, In other Jewish apocalypses, the Babylonian crisis of the 6th century often provides a filter through which later crises are viewed. The emphasis is not on the uniqueness of the historical events, but on recurring patterns which assimilate the particular crisis to some event in the past. And, you know, you ask a progressive dispensationalist today, do you believe that the beast of Revelation 13 is Nero? Or do you believe it's a future Antichrist? And their answer is yes, it's both. Because the prophecy is fulfilled multiple times. Uh, Bach and Blazing, it's just hard to keep track of what they're doing with Revelation 17 and 18. Blazing and Bach interpret Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 as, as representing Rome. Rebuilt Babylon on the Euphrates. In addition to any other city in the sweep of history. So you ask them, well, is it, is it Jerusalem that fell? Is it Rome? Uh, is it future Babylon on the Euphrates? Is it San Francisco? Is it Hollywood? Is it Las Vegas? And their answer is yes. It's all, all of them. You say, well, how can you do that? Because you poor naive fundamentalists, haven't you been taught about genre and how in genre there are multiple fulfillments? Now think about this for a minute. Look at, you know, when you think about Isaiah 53, was that fulfilled multiple times? It's fulfilled singularly in a person. And when you point this out, they say, well, Isaiah is prophecy. We're not talking about prophecy here. This is apocalyptic. And so this multivalence uh, category opens up. And we, what do we move away from? Single meaning. Milton Terry correctly said, a fundamental principle in grammatico-historical exposition is that words and sentences can have but one significance in the one and same connection. The moment we neglect this principle, we drift upon a sea of uncertainty and conjecture. I think I think he's articulating that right. That's what I believe. But that's gone under this uh, apocalyptic category. A third hermeneutical door opens up, and that's the whole idea of code theories. Uh, the, the harlot is described in Revelation 17, and on her forehead it's written, Babylon the Great, mother of harlots. And you get in these doctoral classes, and... They throw out the question, well, what's the identity of the harlot? And all these answers come. Well, I think it's Rome. I think it's this and that. I put my hand up and I say, I think it's Babylon. I say, why is that? Well, it says, it says Babylon right there <laughs> on her title. Did, did you know that the word Babylon is used 300 times in the Bible? You know what it means every single time? You, are you seated for this? This is deep. It means Babylon. You go through all the geography in the book of Revelation, Asia, Sardis, whatever, Euphrates, those are all literal places, aren't they? 
why wouldn't Babylon also be Babylon? And you express yourself in this way, and they say, oh, you poor, naive, flat-earth fundamentalist. Don't you understand genre? And don't you understand that during this time, Babylon was used as a code word for Rome, and they, they point to Sibylline Oracle chapter 5. And so what people do is when they look at the word Babylon, they immediately substitute the word Rome for it. Because Babylon is used as a code word for Rome. Where? In the outside writings. So F.F. F. Bruce says the title was written on her forehead, uh, Babylon the Great. Notice what he says. Babylon the Great is red, but Rome is meant. So when you see Babylon, you should substitute the word Rome. Why would I do that? Because we all know that in apocalyptic literature, codes are very prominent. Well, guess what? You're no longer interpreting the text. You're allowing ideas from outside the text to influence your interpretation of the text. Robert Thomas correctly says, another clear distinctive of literal interpretation is its avoidance of assumptions not justified in the text. Theories that Babylon in Revelation is a code for Rome have been widespread. What he's saying is that's not literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutics anymore. Henry Morris, in his book, The Revelation Record, correctly says, Paul was not afraid to speak directly against Rome in his writings, so why should John be? And see, what they're trying to argue is the biblical writers were too intimidated to use the word Rome because that would invite persecution. So they put a substitute word in called Babylon, and they think the Bible is doing that because it's what kind of genre? Apocalyptic. Henry Morris says, Paul was not afraid to speak directly against Rome in his writings, so why should John be? In other words, if the biblical writers were afraid to use the word Rome, why do we have a book in the Bible called the book of Romans? That doesn't make any sense, does it? But that that door opens up as well. Um, and then the fourth hermeneutical door that opens up is numbers don't represent count units anymore. They represent concepts. Steve Gregg says, as in other apocalypses, now what apocalypses is he talking about? All the non-canonical stuff. As in other apocalypses, certain numbers in Revelation convey concepts more than count units. The most evident of these is seven, the number of completeness or perfection. So numbers, you can't use them to actually count things. They represent a concept. So, so uh, for example, you go to the last couple chapters of the Bible where you learn about the New Jerusalem that giant city that comes down from heaven where the exact measurements are given. And you look at what progressive dispensationalists do with that city, and they say that number is not literal. Why not? Perhaps the absence of oysters large enough to produce such pearls. You know, the last two chapters talk about these giant pearls. There's not enough oysters to produce pearls like that, we're told. Perhaps the absence of oysters large enough to produce such pearls and the absence of sufficient gold to, to pave such a city viewed 
as literally 1,380 miles squared and high is sufficient reason not to take these images as fully literal. The preceding discussion serves to warn against a hyper-literal, there's the name calling, I mean, if you believe that the dimensions of the city are exactly the way they're described, then you're called hyper-literal. You're not supposed to approach literature that way because it's what kind of imagery? Apocalyptic. Incidentally, I didn't know God was dependent when he wants to create streets of gold on how much gold exists in the world. I didn't realize God, when he wants to create pearls, was dependent upon oysters and how many there are on the earth. I mean, doesn't God just speak and things come into existence? But what they're arguing is that the foolishness, it's ridicule, of interpreting these things literally because we all know it is uh, apocalyptic. So Kenneth Gentry doesn't think the number 1,000 mentioned in Revelation 20 six times is 1,000. He says, the proper understanding of the thousand-year time frame in Revelation 20 is it's representative of a long and glorious era and is not limited to a literal 365,000 days. The figure represents a perfect cube of 10, which is the number of quantitative perfection. Wait a minute, I thought, no, I thought 7 was perfection. They just did the switcheroo on me and said 10 cubed is the number of perfection. So you see what's happening is you're moving into an allegorical approach. Uh, Daryl Bach, my professor, who used to keep me long hours after class, I think he looked at me as sort of a long-term project that he could work on. You know, I, I, I asked him, are you premillennial? Yeah, I'm premillennial. I said, well, do you believe Revelation 20 is talking about a literal thousand-year kingdom? He says, no, I don't. Well, why not? Well, that's apocalyptic. And I said, well, how can you be premillennial? He said, well, I still believe in a future kingdom. Uh, I just don't believe it's a literal thousand years. Now, does such a man deserve the title premillennial? We, we could debate that. But it's a very different premillennialism than I know of, which is not just speaking of a future kingdom on the earth. But God in Revelation 20 six times tells us that its, its duration you know, is a thousand years. Uh, so you get in these doctoral classes and uh, they ask the question, what does a thousand years mean? And all these hands go up and answers are given and I raise my hand and I say, I think a thousand means a thousand. Um, John knows how to say long time and short time, doesn't he? Uh, by the way, when you have a number with the, uh, with a, the word thousand, Go, do a study in your Greek New Testament. You'll see it always refers to a literal period of time. And by the way, if a thousand is not literal, what do you do with every other number in the book of Revelation? It kind of opens Pandora's box, doesn't it? Two witnesses doesn't mean two witnesses. Neither does 7,000 people, four angels, seven angels, 144,000 Jews, 12,000 from each tribe, 42 months. 1,260 days. So I, I agree with Robert Thomas, who's interpreting the text, not being influenced by apocalyptic thought outside the text when he says no number in Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. And I, Thomas, myself, others come to that conclusion because we're looking at the text, not by developing a hermeneutic from outside the text, and reading it back into the biblical text. 
So uh, a major weakness, and by the way, look at, look at this quote here from Charles Lee Feinberg. Are you guys familiar with the famous book he wrote, Millennialism, The Two Major Views? Look at how he starts. He's from a prior generation. He said, this study is to be based for its source material on the Bible alone. Amen to that? And not upon secular or apocryphal literature. Why the necessity for such an explanation? The answer seems to be found in the number of books that attempt to trace the roots of the millennial doctrine in some perverted or works extraneous to the Bible. What is he doing there? He's, he's attacking or critiquing all these other books that people today think are so important. Uh, he goes on and he says, So we intend to center our attention upon the word of God as our first and last authority, which is the way it should be with all doctrines and those who hold to the orthodox position on the Bible. This is why you've got a generational gap here, why older guys interpret prophecy one way, younger guys interpret it a different way, because they're being sucked into uh, this genre override of uh, apocalypticism. How similar is the book of Revelation to the non-canonical books? We can point to a lot of similarities. How about the differences? Apocalyptic literature is pseudonymous, meaning it's a false writer. You know, Enoch did not write the book of Enoch. Someone used Enoch's name. Well, in the book of Revelation, it's actually John that wrote that, isn't it? Apocalyptic genre is pessimistic about the present. The book of Revelation isn't because Jesus has already broken into history and secured the victory. Apocalyptic genre has no epistles in it. And what do you find in Revelation 2 and 3? Seven letters to seven churches. There's an epistolary framework. Apocalyptic genre, interestingly left, doesn't emphasize morality. What does Jesus keep saying to five of the seven churches? Repent, repent, repent. Apocalyptic genre says Messiah's coming is exclusively future. The book of Revelation says, yeah, he's coming back, but he's already come the first time. Apocalyptic genre does not call itself prophecy. The book of Revelation does. Apocalyptic genre is fraudulent. It's people pretending to trace his, uh, predict the future when they're really writing after the fact, tracing history. Is that what's going on with the book of Revelation? Obviously not. John is not a fraudulent writer. He's not writing after the events happened. He's making a prediction. Apocalyptic genre concerns a future generation. The book of Revelation talks about the generation in John's day, the seven letters to the seven churches, and the yet future generation as well. So I would say if we really want to get into this and develop a hermeneutic from the non-canonical books, yeah, I can point to similarities between the book of Revelation and apocalyptic literature, but what about all the differences? Uh, I think we need to be intellectually honest, don't we, and argue that there's a lot of differences. So I'm not, I've never been comfortable with developing a method of interpretation from literature that has a different character than the book of Revelation and using that as some kind of guide for interpreting the book of Revelation. But that's why I'm not really well received in scholarly circles. And, and neither will you be if you stand up and talk the way I'm talking. 
you'll be looked at as the poor, flat earth, naive fundamentalist that does that that lacks genre sensitivity and genre sophistication. So I've told you the wrong approach. Let me wrap things up by giving you what I would consider to be the right approach. We're finally getting to the text now, Revelation 1.3. Did you guys turn there? A proper classification of the book of Revelation is not apocalyptic, but it's what? Prophecy. What does Revelation 1.3 say? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the or this prophecy. The book of Revelation, I think around 18 times, uh, calls itself not apocalyptic, but it calls itself prophecy. And at some point I need to respect the designation the book of Revelation gives to itself. And to me, it fits prophecy very well, because what do prophets do? Uh, They comfort the oppressed in the present with a glorious picture of of how evil will be done away with in the future. That's what Isaiah is doing. Ezekiel, Amos, and the book of Revelation is doing the exact same thing. By the way, these prophets, and that's why so many of them were stoned to death, called people to repent, didn't they? What does the book of Revelation call the seven churches to do? Five of the seven churches repent. See, it fits the character of prophecy, even though there's a lot of symbolic language used. And there's an awful lot of people out there. I heard this at the seminary that Daniel is not a prophet. And I say, well, why why do you not think that Daniel is a prophet? Well, you see, Daniel's writings are included in Tanakh in the Kethabim, Section, You know, the Jews divided what we call Old Testament of three parts, Torah, Nabim, Kethabim. And they say Daniel's not in the prophet section, the, the N or the Nabim section. It's in the writing section. So we can't call Daniel a prophet. Well, do you think Jesus is a pretty good interpreter of Daniel? <laughs> Jesus here is quoting Daniel 9.27. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, the apocalypticist, no... <laughs> the prophet so why wouldn't we call revelation prophecy since obviously john is leaning you know heavily on the book of daniel since so much of daniel occurs in revelation if daniel is prophecy then why not revelation why would that not be prophecy as well now what people say is well but what about the word apocalypsis look at revelation 1 1 the revelation, which is the Greek word apocalypsis, of Jesus Christ. Say, aha, the word apocalypsis, that means it's apocalyptic. No. You know what that word means? It means unveiling. That's all it means. Henry Morris writes, it must be stressed, and I love this quote, that revelation means unveiling and not veiling. God didn't give us a secret book that no one could understand in the book of Revelation because its very name means to unveil. So you can't use the word apocalypsis at the beginning as some kind of tool for arguing that the whole book is what they call apocalyptic. Now, once you make this call that Revelation is prophecy instead of apocalyptic, then that controls your method of interpretation. 
So what I believe is this, that once you call it prophecy instead of apocalyptic, those four hermeneutical doors that I described earlier, those close. Those slam shut. And that's the reason there's this push, I believe, to call this apocalyptic, because these guys want these doors open, not closed. Uh, I, so what I think is the exact same literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation that I would use in John or Romans or Genesis, I'm using in the book of Revelation as well. It's just in the book of Revelation, it's harder because there's more symbols involved. But I'll show you in a second how there's a way to understand these symbols and decipher them. So I agree very much with what Robert Thomas writes here in his Revelation commentary. He says, because in broad perspective, the apocalypse is prophetic in nature, as is the rest of the New Testament, a different set of hermeneutical principles is not needed to interpret the book. That's why we are concluding different things than the direction evangelicalism is headed. They're all arguing you need a different set of hermeneutical principles. We're saying, no, you don't. The same old LGH, literal grammatical historical, applies. I use it anywhere in the Bible. I use it in the book of Revelation as well. So if you believe that, then you start to say, you know what? Half of the world's population has never been destroyed. The sea has never been turned to blood red. I know the BP oil spill was bad, but it wasn't that bad. The greatest earthquake in human history has never happened. We've never had the single city Babylon reigning over the earth, so therefore I'm not a preterist, I'm not a historicist, I'm a what? Futurist. And once you start using a consistent method of interpretation, what comes roaring back into popularity is our view, where we look at these things as yet... Uh, yet future. Now, some of you are saying, you poor, naive, flat-earth fundamentalists, don't you understand all the, all the symbols in the book of Revelation? Yeah, I agree, a lot of symbols there. I think Wayne had something like this up earlier. Uh, we, we've always believed that language can either be plain language or figurative language. Plain language is called denotative, Figurative language is called connotative. And of course, the great danger when you're interpreting is to get them confused. So, you know, one time I was, uh, I put some coffee in the microwave and I forgot to turn it off. And uh, I went into the other room and it started bubbling over. And my wife yells out to me. She says, honey, your cup is running over. And I said, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm blessed and I'm, <laughs> I'm happy in life. So obviously we were confusing, you know, de denotative and, and connotative. One time I was in the closet and she was yelling at me in the other room and I was trying to yell back and my voice was being muffled because of the walls. And so she says, you need to come out of the closet. <laughs> I thought, what is she talking about? Come out of the closet. But we, we have denotative language, we have connotative language, that's all over the Bible. Well, the book of Revelation has the same thing, doesn't it? But the text will tell you when something is not meant to be understood denotatively, but meant to be understood connotatively. So you look for different clues. The word spiritually. The word sign is a clue, the Greek word simeon. 
the Greek word like or as means he's using what kind of figure of speech? A simile. Or it talks in Revelation 13 about the seven, uh, I'm sorry, the four animals. I don't interpret those literally because I know that those mean something in Daniel 7. Each of those animals, the leopard and so forth, represents a different empire. And sometimes right there in the context, it'll tell me not to interpret something uh, denotatively, but it will interpret, tell me to interpret it connotatively because there's a giant prostitute there in Revelation 17. I don't interpret that as a literal prostitute because the very last verse of the chapter says the great prostitute is a what? City that reigns over the whole earth. So in other words, this prostitute that I've been reading about is really not meant to be understood denotatively, but it's meant to be understood connotatively. So we do this all of the time in regular communication. We do this all of the time in other books of the Bible. We can do it in Revelation. It's just it becomes a little bit more difficult because there's a lot more symbols in the book of Revelation than we find elsewhere. And then once I figure out something is connotative instead of denotative, I'm not left to my sanctified imagination to attach any meaning I want. I've got basic rules that I follow. Dr. John Walford says in his commentary on Revelation that the symbol will be interpreted in the same chapter about 26 times. So, So who is the great dragon of revelation 12 and verse 3 well we know that's the devil because verse 9 tells me that who is the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars Uh, the context doesn't tell me so now i've got to go into the old testament did you know i was fascinated to learn this that the book of revelation has 404 verses in it and no old testament quotes but it has Of those 404 verses, 278 are allusions, not necessarily direct quotes, but allusions back to the Old Testament. That's why we don't know much about the book of Revelation, because we don't know the Old Testament well. But when you run into this woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars, and you remember the Joseph story, then suddenly the woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars is identifiable It says, now he still had another dream and related it to his brothers and said, lo, I have had still another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars. Does that sound familiar? Were bowing down to me. His father, that would be, he related it to his father. That would be Jacob. Joseph has this dream, tells it to his dad. His dad doesn't say, oh, that's just wonderful news, son. He says, you stupid 17-year-old kid, what are you talking about? What is this dream that you have had? Now, in the process of the rebuke, Jacob interprets the imagery. Shall I and your mother and your brothers come down to bow ourselves before you? So we know that the sun is Jacob. The moon is Mrs. Jacob. Uh, I used to call her Rachel, but I think Rachel died in Genesis 35. So the only wife he's got left is Leah in Genesis 37. The 11 stars are Joseph's who? Brothers. The 12 stars Joseph. And so the 12 stars represent the 12 what? Tribes. So Jacob and Mrs. Jacob and the 12 tribes would be a symbol for the nation of Israel. 
So you see how I was able to understand this without going to the Sibylline Oracles or the <laughs> Book of Enoch and all of these kinds of things? So the point I'm trying to make is our method of interpretation still works. Don't let people uh, convince you into thinking that the literal grammatical historical method that you use anywhere in the Bible is no longer applicable. Uh, a One thing I forgot to mention is the book of Revelation will use the word like or as many times. So we know that's a simile. So it talks about a giant mountain on fire uh, falling into the ocean and the ocean becomes, a third of it becomes blood red. And we know that John there, when he describes this mountain on fire, is describing it, describing it to something of his own time because he says it's like a giant mountain on fire. So John, to me, is sort of like Benjamin Franklin being catapulted from his own time period in a vision and being put into a hobby airport. Uh, how would Ben Franklin, when he hears something on the loudspeaker, how would he describe that? He's got no vocabulary from his own day to describe it. He sees someone uh, checking their email. How could Ben Franklin describe that? Uh, he sees a giant plane take off or a giant plane land. How would he describe that? He has no vocabulary for it. So he would say it's like, and he would analogize it to something from his own time. And that's largely what's happening with John. He's being taken in a vision from the first century into the 21st century, or if the Lord tarries beyond the 21st century, and he's seeing all of these things that we as 21st century people have a vocabulary for. He has no vocabulary for it. So he keeps saying it's like this. He's struggling because he was just told to write what he hears and sees. So he's struggling to make analogies. And so that's yet another way to understand Revelation's symbols. So when once we identify what the symbol is and there's clues that help us, then we have other rules that help us interpret the symbol. So I'm not coming at the text with my sanctified imagination. I'm, I'm either looking at the context, which many, many times will interpret the symbol for us, or I'm looking at the Old Testament if that doesn't work, or I'm looking at John is struggling to make a comparison, which we call a, a simile. So um, in conclusion, what I've tried to show is the new approach is the apocalyptic approach. I've tried to explain what that is, what they mean by that. They don't mean what Ralph Alexander talked about in 1968. That's not what they mean. What they mean is you go to the non-canonical sources, develop a method of interpretation, and read that back into the Bible once that happens, hermeneutical doors open that can't be closed. And that's why um, people are saying stranger and stranger things today related to eschatology. I've tried to explain the weaknesses of that approach. Uh, I've tried to contrast that with the traditional approach where we would categorize Revelation as prophecy which means that the same literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation that I apply anywhere else, I apply to the book of Revelation. And our method, as much as people malign it, is sophisticated enough where we can identify symbols and properly decipher the symbols. 
So within the canon itself is the information God has given us to understand very difficult literature like uh, the book of Revelation. I want to just leave you with this quote. I've been reading through uh, Paul Lee Tan's book, The Interpretation of Prophecy. Uh, He showed up at my church uh, a couple of weeks ago and gave me a copy of his book. It's got a new cover on it now. Uh, His daughter, Christine, was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary. You can pray for Paul's wife, her mom, who's going through cancer and things like that. I think she's doing better now. But he says this in his book. Uh, even and, and people say, well, this is just eschatology. You know, who, who cares what we do with the beginning of the Bible and the end? He writes this. Evangelicals who spiritualize Bible prophecy cannot logically forbid liberals and modernists from spiritualizing selected areas of Christology and soteriology. You see that? If evangelicals can spiritualize Christ's earthly kingdom, may not liberals spiritualize the earthly ministry of Christ, including his miracles and resurrection? The same hermeneutical principles used to spiritualize Bible prophecy can be used to spiritualize Christ's first advent. Christians who spiritualize parts of the scripture, such as its prophetic portions, and that's what all these guys are doing, have forfeited a major element of their defense against liberalism. And what he's saying is if you call Genesis 1 through 11 non-literal because it's some kind of polemic, and you call the book of Revelation non-literal because it's apocalyptic, how much longer will it be until people take that same spiritualizing method and apply it to the middle of the Bible? And isn't that what Dr. Farnell's presentations are about? I'm sorry, am I allowed to call him Dr. Farnell? Servant Farnell. <laughs> what his presentations are about? Did you, did you catch the uh, uh, intellectual tool that they're using to dismiss The resurrected saints of Matthew 27, did you catch what they call it? They call it what? It starts with an A. Apocalyptic. So we've gone so far down the road with this that people think, well, I've done it at this end of the Bible and this end of the Bible. Let's just do the same thing at the middle of the Bible. That's why I think we need to be concerned about prophecy and interpreting it correctly. So I'm finished talking, and we could open it up for Q&A if you want to do that. Don't give that mic to my wife. Is that a suggestion or a recommendation? <laughs> That's a presidential decree. <laughs> <laughs> Executive order. <laughs> All right, is anybody over here? You think Obama issued executive orders? You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> have you? Uh, anybody over here have a have a question? Hmm? Oh. Um, yeah. You had a slide about five slides back where you uh, indicated a number of markers in the text. Yeah. Uh, that one there, spiritually, sign, like, or as. Uh, one that I don't see there, and one I was going to ask about was the Mosterion in Revelation 17. Connected to the to the name 
of Babylon in verse 5 oh. and in verse 7 it says mystery yes musterion yeah let me go back because the slide I have here uh, will explain that that's a difference in reading you'll notice at the top of the screen mm -hmm. the KJV and the NIV some of you might be NIV positive but <laughs> you'll notice you notice that the word mystery is capitalized there <laughs> But look at the NASB. Mystery is not capitalized. So if you're reading this in the KJV or the NIV, you would think mystery is part of her title. But that's not the way the NASB reads. Mystery is not part of her title. And I'm convinced that the NASB gets it right because Babylon, I can't remember three or four other times, is called Babylon the Great elsewhere in the in revelation she's never called mystery babylon the great so that's very important because people think uh let's see if i can find it um i had a quote up there from ff F. bruce does anybody recall where that is other way there it is look at what he says the title was written on her forehead mystery Mystery indicates that the name she bears is not to be understood literally, but allegorically. Babylon the Great is red, but Rome is meant. So he believes that the top version is accurate. So F.F. F. Bruce uses that as an excuse for not taking Babylon literally. By my way of thinking, the NASB has it right. Babylon the Great means Babylon the Great, and how she is destroyed by the beast is a biblical mystery. A, a mystery is a new truth never before un unfolded. So exactly how the beast destroys her is the mystery. So I don't take Mysterion as part of her title and that's why I don't think it's justified to use that word to spiritualize the word Babylon. Does that help at all? Or did I just... Well, no, no, I understand that. And, okay. And even whether it's capitalized or not or part of the name or not, still the word is there and it sets it apart as a usage of Babylon different from the other places in Revelation where Babylon is referenced Yes. without the, the, the term Musterion being there. So I was curious what you do with Musterion. And so you apply it to the destruction yes. of Babylon. Because... Cause a, a, mis, a Greek mystery is a, a new truth never before revealed. Babylon and her end time role and her destruction is revealed in the Old Testament. It's in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But how God puts his purposes into the heart of the Antichrist to destroy her is a totally new truth. So I think that's what it's talking about. Uh, does, that, does that help at all? You may not agree, but at least you understand the sure. method. Yeah, I hear you. So, and, and, and the reason you can see why there's confusion on it, because our different Bible translations are saying two different things. So that's a great question. Uh, I remember Gentry in the I 70s wrote an article about why he thought the Bible was not, apoc uh, Revelation was not apocalyptic. He had read Leon Morris's good book yeah. uh, that was written in the 70s arguing against that. Of course, I think it was around the year 2000, we had a debate, and he gets up there, and apparently he's adopted the new meaning 
of apocalypticism, yeah. you know, and he used that in the debate that we were having. And I would argue that, you know, uh, people like, um, what's that professor from Ralph Alexander's thesis or dissertation on apocalypticism was a biblical view of apocalypticism and people are and back then they believed it referred to you know a visionary language and things like that in bible prophecy uh or what could be in any context but then they came along and they brought in the secular view what's that guy that writes all those volumes on it you mentioned him at the beginning um you know where they go and define it from uh extra biblical material and oh that, uh, collins j uh, collins collins but there's another guy cared what cared no oh. another guy you who, who <laughs> you you had mentioned but okay uh nevertheless <laughs> they they all of a sudden made this switch yes uh, somewhere in, I think, in the 80s, where apocalypticism was defined by liber- what we would consider liberalism in the 70s, you see? Mm-hmm. And so you have pastors using the word apocalyptic today, and they may have a, a you know, biblical meaning to it, the yeah. way uh, Walvert and Pentecost and Ralph Alexander used it, but I don't think they're communicating. Right. Because uh, the average person, if they have any knowledge on it, it's probably going to be you know all this extra biblical liberal yeah. stuff that comes down the pike. Yeah. Well, the old definition, Ralph Alexander, I, I just quoted Pentecost up here because he said it succinctly. Right. But he's developing the genre category from within the canon. Right. Now, what's happening is people are taking that exact same word. And pouring into apocalyptic and pouring it into an extra biblical definition. Yes. So I think we, unless you unless you have time to explain to people what you mean by apocalyptic, I think we should just dump the term entirely. Right. And call it for for how the Bible defines itself. A prophecy. Prophecy. Yeah. Yes. Another question. We have one minute. One time for one more question. Is that a symbol oh, or a count unit, that minute? <laughs> one means uno. Okay. I was just going to reinforce what yep. you had said. Uh, very good talk, by the way. Got to get on your good side since you're going to be my boss. <laughs> <laughs> in the hermeneutics course, one of the things I like to emphasize uh, on symbolic language we use symbols all the time, particularly in the sciences, and I use a lot of scientific examples. One of them, uh, uh, M, e- M equals, or, or E equals MC squared. We don't have the liberty to make E mean whatever we want it to mean. We have to see what the author intended by all of those symbols. Otherwise, they don't work. So to reinforce what you're saying is we need to look into the context or background, uh, Old Testament, to find the meaning of these symbols. But they have clearly defined meanings within their context without 
going to uh, our imagination to try to figure out what these are. So uh, I thought you did a good job of explaining yeah. that, but you might add these mathematical, we use mathematical symbols, we use scientific symbols all the time, yeah. but we have clearly defined meanings for all of them. Yeah, there's always a referent yes. behind these. Very good. All right. thank you. Dr. Woods, thank you very much.